Welcome to This Much I Learn, Marketing Week's monthly podcast in which we invite the great and good in marketing and beyond to impart their wisdom and perspective on marketing matters. My name is Russell Parsons, Editor-in-Chief of Marketing Week, and I am your host for this episode. In many ways, this is a break from the usual tenor of these podcasts, as the subject is as much a brand as it is individuals. That brand is Guinness. And Guinness is on a roll at the moment with volume and value sales on the up. It recently laid claim to being the UK's most popular beer brand in the on trade. It's also flying in many of the hundreds of territories it is sold in globally. In a recent column for Marketing Week, our columnist Mark Ritson unpicked the success of, I quote, this exceptional brand run by an exceptional group of marketers. Two of those are with me today to talk about the past, present and future of the brand. Neil Shah is head of Guinness GB at parent company Diageo and Gronje Wafer is global director for beer, Guinness, Smirnoff and Baileys at Diageo. Neil, Gronje, welcome to This Much I Learn. Hello, looking forward to this conversation. Hi Russell. Let's take you back, I suppose in many ways, to your own origin stories and if I can start with you Neil, what was your first encounter, well, with Guinness as a marketer and indeed as a consumer? Let me start with the marketer question. Hi, Russell. Happy to be here. So my first experience with Guinness as a marketer, um, well, there's been probably too many encounters to recall, and that's likely because um, Guinness is such an icon. And it's because of that reason, it's been such a genuinely humbling experience and a real career highlight to be lucky enough to get to work on the brand here in GB. One experience that does stand out for me was my first visit to the Guinness storehouse in Ireland, so the brand home for Guinness, about a decade ago, and getting to see firsthand what it really takes to build a global icon like Guinness that is loved around the world. So getting to experience everything from the craft to the focus on quality of the liquid, um, the amazing innovation and the game-changing and high-impact marketing, as well as all the people who touch it with true passion. It was a hugely inspiring and enlightening experience um, and I actually remember saying to my now wife um, one day I would love to work on Guinness and here I am. Here you are indeed, your, all your dreams come true as, as head of the brand in GB. What about as a, a consumer, do you remember your first pint of Guinness? Um, I certainly do remember my first pint of Guinness actually, it was with my father in um, a local pub, so my, my father is uh, a fan of the brand as well and, and very delighted when I, uh, when I got the job to, um, to, to work on the brand here in GB. Excellent. Gronje, same two questions for you. Do you remember your first encounter professionally? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I, I'll start with the personal one if you don't mind because I think it leads nicely into the professional story. My father actually had a pub, which was right at the gates of the St. James's Gate Brewery in Dublin. So I literally grew up with the smell of roasted barley in the air, right? I'd say it's kind of in my in my ether. And you can only imagine then when I kind of got to walk through those iconic gates, having secured, um, you know, the job in Guinness. And Guinness is such a legendary place in, in Ireland. Um, a, a little bit like Neil, that immense pride of my father and mother as, as uh, for securing that incredible job, you know, and such a privilege. And uh, again, I think I still feel that privilege very much today, still feel hugely proud. I mean, I love, um, and particularly, obviously, when we weren't in the office through COVID, I really miss that sense of connection with the place. Um, 
and it's fabulous walking back in and out of those gates every day now so it's great um, as a marketeer, um, I'm in uh, Guinness um, actually since the formation of, of Diageo, so quite a long time. And some of the early projects I worked on way back then was actually the floating widget in a can and um, and then actually the rocket widget in Guinness Draft in a Bottle. And um, it was really, a, again, a fantastic time for innovation back then, as it is, I think, today. So, yeah, that's my story. I was smiling along at the uh, recollection of widgets. I do remember when widgets were a thing as if they were the biggest and best innovation in alcoholic drinks. Um, people looked upon them and discussed them with great awe and curiosity. I was in Dublin just very recently, and I think it's very, very, very apparent uh, the brand has a, a special place there because the history of it is on display almost wherever you go uh, from ads around and about in pubs etc and ads that date back uh, years and decades uh, to the brewery obviously that you mentioned where it all began i don't think there are many brands where its past is celebrated in this way i mean Gronya, how does guinness's history and i guess you touched a little bit upon it for your own experience there but how does the history inform the strategy and tactics employed for the brand today in 2023 i mean look i think first of all it's a very living history i mean you mentioned it there you see it in front of you um not just in dublin and ireland but actually as you look at the brand around the world but we are incredibly fortunate. We have this incredible living archive in our home in, in the Guinness Storehouse in Dublin. And, you know, we and all of our teams in the markets draw regularly on that for inspiration. But there are kind of a couple of key elements of our history that I think are really embedded in our brand positioning, in our strategy, and actually even in, in the way we think about um, our approach to marketing. The first of which is, of course, our founder, Arthur Guinness himself, right? And he was this incredibly brave and bold guy who decided to brew stout when everybody else in the world back then was brewing ale. And that informs a spirit of what we call, you know, only Guinness can do. And it's really zigging when others zag and really looking for that spirit of breaking new ground in our work. So that history and that thread is carried right through to how we approach our, our, our marketing and our all of our work today. The second thing that I think is really interesting in our history, which is also a thread that's, um, you know, kind of feeds our DNA and our values. And, and that's the, you know, incredible philanthropic legacy of Arthur Guinness and the Guinness family who provided, you know, homes and healthcare for workers. And as you said, Russell, when you were in Dublin, you could see some of the, you know, the, the impact, the positive impact they have had on the city. And that really informs a lot of the substance around the brand that again people will talk to and describe and 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 then finally I think the the other thread is that piece about you know just the warmth and charm of the brand that I think is probably best exemplified from some of that wonderful Gilroy advertising from the 30s 40s 50s and those three kind of threads really lead to the DNA of Guinness right and there's three words which we use and they are power, goodness and communion. And those three words inform everything we do on the brand. They inform our strategy. They inform our, our positioning. Um, you'll see them if you anybody who looks at a Guinness ad from now on. I hope if you look at it with those three words in mind that you will see those living strongly and proudly through that. 
And then the other piece that, again, I just think is a fabulous story um, from our past that, again, approaches, uh, really informs our marketing approach, which is when it came to doing our first ever ad for Guinness, right, way back in 1929, this group of, um, you know, intrepid marketeers um, punched up the courage to kind of go into uh, Sir Edward Guinness and say, you know, we want to advertise this brand. And he was not, by all accounts, at all convinced by this, right? And, you know, sort of thought it was somewhat tawdry, I think. So he sent them packing with their tail between their legs, but they persevered and came back and, you know, convinced him that um, advertising Guinness for the first time in 1929 would be a really good thing to do. But he only agreed on the, with the mandate that, the quality of the advertising has to equal the quality of the beer. And that actually is the mantra we live by today. The quality of our advertising has to be up to the you know, distinctive quality of our beer. Um, so that's just some of the sort of threads from our history that really, I suppose, live strongly and, and beat strongly in the brand today. That's fascinating. I didn't know that. The quality of ad matching the quality of the beer, which I suppose is pulling on two of the four Ps at the same time. It's difficult for you to judge whether or not that's the case, I, I, I guess, though. Is it, is it, or is it more like a rallying call that you need to be great and impactful in your advertising creative and make sure that the quality of the product is up to speed as well? Or, or, or do you have a way of measuring it? I think you're right. It's more of a, it's more of a rallying cry and an intent for the work. Um, it's the impetus that drives us forward. It's the drive to make our work really, really distinctive, um, you know, to think as much about the craft as we think about the message as well. And I think there are some of the sort of signature aspects of, you know, what makes great Guinness advertising, you know, a powerful, beautiful story, a story that brings to life those values of power, goodness and communion. And then that's executed in a way that, you know, feels product rooted and relevant to the beer. So, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and Neil, if I could just bring you in on this um, understanding the DNA. I'm fascinated by this. Um, every great cheerleader for the virtues of brand diagnosis will talk about the need to understand from whence a brand came. But given it's 2023 and you come to life in many occasions and from an advertising perspective in many ways, why does anybody care who's buying or is a prospective buyer of Guinness, um, you don't need to tell them the history. So why does it matter that you as a marketer and your team in GB and indeed the rest of the world understand the DNA of a product and a brand? Well, I think what's really interesting about the points that Gwon, you made around the brand's DNA and particularly the values of power, goodness and communion is they're really critical to our brand distinctiveness. And Guinness as a brand um, in GB is the number one most distinctive beer brand and as actually the number five most distinctive brand out of all brands in GB um, after Uber, Netflix, National Lottery and Tesla. And actually, where this becomes um, important is um, an understanding the brand's DNA and values and carrying it forward is to kind of hold on to that distinctivity. So we talk a lot at Diageo about this concept of standing on the shoulders of giants. 
And it's even um, more relevant to a brand like Guinness that has such a, a heritage and a legacy. And so, you know, the concept of standing on the shoulders of giants is really about continuing the legacy of our brand founders, so Arthur Guinness in this case, and then the leaders and the teams um, who have touched Guinness before us. So it's not about ripping up the rule book. It's about building on it. And this not only allows us to continue our brand legacies, but also to ensure that we stay focused, that we're consistent. And as I mentioned, ultimately leading um, to us really holding on to what makes our brand distinctive, which is a real superpower of the Guinness brand, both in GB and globally. On that distinctiveness uh, in regards to the assets, obviously you've got a, a great product. When we talk about distinctive assets and, and strong brand codes, Guinness, as I say, has plenty of them. How do you nurture those? How do you make sure that they stay as strong as they are and also look at to ways of how you exploit them? Yes, we've got a um, really good example in some recent work from GB, um, our Looks Like a Guinness campaign, our ongoing campaign there. So when we look at Guinness's distinctivity, what is really central to this is our kind of one quarters white, three quarters black pint, which is unmistakably Guinness. And we know it's our most memorable um, key brand asset, as we like to call it. And it's also one of the things that people really tell us that they love about the brand. So, you know, if you go into a pub, um, you, and you see someone drinking a pint of Guinness, you know exactly what they're drinking, given how visually unique the pint is. But if you see someone drinking another beer, um, it's unlikely you're going to be able to tell what the brand is, given they all look familiar. So as I said, it's a real superpower for our brand. And um, we recently leveraged this um, as part of our um, Looks Like Guinness campaign to help us further build our brand distinctivity and salience um, of Guinness with key occasions. So a little bit of background about the campaign. About two years ago, almost to the day, actually, um, it cast your mind back. It was peak lockdown 2021. Pubs were, were closed. Um, and we wanted to ensure that when they reopened, that Guinness was winning first pint, but also to make sure that we're really supporting our on-trade customers with footfall. So on-trade, for, for those who, who might not know, it's... Um, pubs, bars, restaurants. We learned from social listening that Guinness was the most talked about and anticipated pint as people were looking for a d delicious pint of something set, uh, special as the pubs came back. And as part of the conversation on social, lots of people actually started organically posting images of everyday objects um, that looked like our iconic one quarters white, three quarters uh, black pint to show how much they um, missed a pint of Guinness in the pub with their mates. So think, you know, um, black bollard with a white top think um uh we black wheelie bin with white bin bag sticking out think cat on top of a um you know a, a black fence or something to that effect um and the creatives at one of our agency partners um long-standing agency partners amv bbdo um responded to this with what we call looks like a guinness which are essentially lookalikes of guinness pints in everyday situations and this then formed the center of our welcome back campaign which was our ode to the pubs. Um, it was about tapping into that anticipation of people longing to return to the pubs with their mates and getting together for that communion over a pint of Guinness. We've actually then extrapolated the creative idea here to help us further build association with Guinness and key moments and occasions throughout the year that are perfect for a pint of Guinness. So think summer, think Christmas. And actually, you know, 
really focusing and doubling down on this um, distinctive asset in, in, a, in a contemporary and kind of more relevant way has really helped us build salience for Guinness in key occasions through the year, helped us continue to recruit new drinkers across age, demographic, genders and all over GB um, in pubs and at home. And, and, and really, we believe it's contributed to us um, being that number one beer in, in GB pubs, as you mentioned um, earlier, Russell. I mean, it's this really great piece of work, really smart piece of work, the Welcome Back campaign. Uh, For anybody who hasn't seen it, who's listening, we'll post some images in the article that this podcast will sit in on the Marketing Week website. Uh, Gronje, back to this question of uh, DNA. Uh, You obviously oversee Guinness in various different uh, territories. How do you make sure that that DNA runs underneath uh, so you can execute in these very different ways? I think, first of all, power, goodness and communion is common, um, is the common DNA of the brand in every market and in every presentation of its of its beer, whether it's the Guinness Draft markets or the foreign extra stout bottled markets. And, and that's because it is very rooted in the heritage history and product intrinsics. And therefore, they do transcend market difference. At the same time, it's really important that you understand, you know, what power, goodness and communion, like those values, by the way, have been part of our DNA for at least 30 years, right? And what power, goodness and communion has meant for consumers has changed over that time. So it is about understanding how to flex that DNA um, in a way that is relevant to the context you're operating in, either geographical context or historical or, or time context. And, you know, as I was saying before to you, Russell, there was this, like, let's say, go back to the, I think the sort of late 80s, early 90s, and it precedes me, but there was this incredible campaign that ran across Africa, which was this, um, you know, fictional character called Michael Power, who was like an African James Bond, is the only way I can describe it. And he epitomized what those qualities meant in that time period. And, you know, was hugely popular as a campaign. It actually culminated in, again, a full length feature film, which was a box office hit, which is like incredibly audacious kind of from a marketing perspective to think that that's what your ad campaign is going to become. But actually today, we've just last year launched a Pan-Africa campaign called Black Shines Brightest, right? And that is, again, power, goodness and communion, but it's a modern interpretation of those values that are is right for you know, what African consumers and what the continent is feeling right now. So it's a continent that really is kind of bursting with um, optimism and a lot of creativity and loads of confidence. So so the power that it's speaking to is that creativity and confidence. The goodness it's speaking to is all of that optimism. And the communion that it's speaking to is that collective energy that's sort of surging and shaping through Africa. So same DNA, different geography, expressed differently even over time. And and you asked how we do that. I mean, how we do it is, first of all, by obviously staying very close to consumers. But secondly, we work a lot with local culture makers so that we're really making sure that, you know, when we take this global positioning, that we're adding that local cultural insight. Um, because, you know, again, Guinness is one of those brands that has that global iconicity, but has this local heartbeat. And, and we work really hard to get that balance right. I can see um, it fascinating the many different and varied ways that it comes to life in very different territories, but have that through line that underscores everything. 
Uh, now, in researching uh, Guinness, I found out so much more about the brand and its history than, well, I ever knew. Uh, my favourite fact is that it, the black stuff is not actually black. It's a very dark shade of ruby, apparently. What What is your favourite fun fact about Guinness? Uh, I'll start with you, Neil. Yes, you are right. Guinness's um, shock horror is actually ruby red. There are lots of exciting um, facts about the Guinness brand. And, and Gronje mentioned briefly earlier around the living archive and the living history of the brand. And there are so much um, there is so much in there and getting to visit that archive is a real money can't buy experience. It's incredible. Um, as a fan of the brand, but also someone who works on it as well. Um, so, so my favourite fact on Guinness is related a bit to the conversation earlier about the widget. So in 1991, Guinness beat the internet, i.e. the thing that we are talking to each other um, over now, to win the Queen's Award for Technological Advancement for the invention of the widget, which went into our cans of Guinness draft and allowed drinkers to enjoy nitrogenated Guinness um, at home for the first time. And, and actually, this fact is my favourite fact because we really channel it on the brand as we as we look ahead. Because Guinness is a brand on the move, and innovation has always been key to that. And you know, fast forward to today, we're still innovating. We've got the biggest innovation pipeline on the brand in thirty years, which includes the likes of Guinness Zero um, and non-alcoholic Guinness, um, so people can enjoy. Um, all the Guinness with none of the alcohol um, and then dispense innovation um, as well. So the Nitro Surge device, um, which we've just launched in GB a few weeks ago, that allows people to get that iconic two-part pour of Guinness that was only available in the pub um, on Guinness Draft and able to get that at home. So um, yeah, we're, we're a brand on the move and we continue to channel that. Who knew? Never mind the internet's impact on society and culture. What about you, Gronje? What's your favourite fun fact that we learn after starting? So many fun facts. I love the fact that when Tutankhamun's tomb was opened, they actually took the grains of barley and sent them back to St. James's Gate to be dated and analysed because we were the experts in that in the world. I love that. But a more recent one, I just think people are always surprised to understand because I think we think of, you know, Guinness Draft, right? It occupies a big headspace in where we're based in Ireland and in the UK. But I think people are really surprised to just learn about the scale of Guinness globally and to understand that for an extra stout, our bottled Guinness, um, you know, is actually the biggest variant of Guinness in the world. And also, I think, has the same level of affection that people have for Guinness in GB in Ireland, in Nigeria, for example. People think of Guinness as their own. It's their national beer brand. It's as much a part of their culture, history and heritage as, let's say, here in Ireland. So, um, yeah, I think I like that fact, too. Excellent. Now, insight is clearly important to Guinness's success. And we hear a lot in marketing about the need to be close to customers. What have you learned from actually spending time on the front line, as it were, say in a bar, uh, in terms of how the brand is experienced that you've actually been able to take back into your jobs uh, to improve the product and experience and service that you offer customers. Uh, let me start with you, Gronje. Yeah, I think there's two examples I'd share. One is, let's say, a bit more of a macro type insight. Um, and one of the things I think we all see is that socialising is changing, right? And people aren't socialising in the same way as they would have 10 years, 20 years ago. And, and you know, it's becoming much more, you know, mixed up and immersive and people are looking to have 
you know, indoor and outdoor spaces and food and drinks together. And, and you know, you see that unfolding and we respond to it, for example, by, you know, making sure that we have as Neil referenced an innovation pipeline that meets all of those needs. So you can sort of see that happening at a micro level, how socializing is changing at a macro level. At a micro level, one of my favorites, and again, Neil's just referenced it there, so I might build on it there, um, Neil, but night research, right? So during COVID, what we were watching on, again, social listening, this kind of micro insights, we were watching people do extraordinary things and go to incredible effort to try and perfect the serve of Guinness at home, because they obviously, the bars were shut and they couldn't get it there. And they were actually doing things, and Russell, you may not believe this, but they were doing things like using jewelry cleaners and they were using ultrasonic toothbrushes and like you name it, they were trying to hack how you could deliver this perfect serve of Guinness at home with all the ritual and craft. And that actually led to the development of night research, an incredible innovation. It's doing really well, as Neil said, in GB. So, you know, whether it's something small that you spot or something bigger that you feel is sort of a bigger cultural kind of change in socializing behavior, both equally important, both equally rich kind of, you know, veins of potential and growth for a brand. Moving forward, we've obviously illustrated the success that you've had and that's been maintained and is building of late but how are you going to look to maintain that success looking forward Gronier if I could ask you to uh to start with that pretty big question I, I don't want to oversimplify it but I do think a simple strategy that is rooted in the DNA that you consistently execute over you know time is probably the best way of maintaining success and you know learning from what doesn't work etc optimizing so forth investment Russell I mean Guinness has some of the strongest return investments in Diageo and consistently investing behind that is going to continue to drive success in the brand using precision marketing and all of the amazing tools we have that improves that ROI making sure that everything we do is rooted in consumer insight and understanding and occasion understanding responding to that with innovation strategies that unlock you know new pathways for recruitment new occasions and I think also just coming back to the beer, you know, never forgetting that the quality of Guinness is really, really important and investing in that, you know, is also critical, making sure that people can enjoy a beautiful pint of Guinness wherever they were in, um, you know, in whatever occasion. It sounds almost disarmingly straightforward and simple there, Gronje. Strategy, some fundamentals, investment, brand, insight. <laughs> I don't want to fully reveal the 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 um yeah the reveal the the emperor basically but that's the truth of marketing isn't it it is a simple strategy executed consistently with good investment levels with evaluation and learning that optimizes it over time um i don't want to do myself and neil out of a job here but um but yeah i think that that is a lot of the formula sometimes the uh the hardest thing is keeping it simple right Oh, indeed, and, and actually adhering to and executing uh, some of those fundamentals uh, I've seen in my many years as editor of Marketing Week, that that isn't quite as straightforward. It's certainly not a given. Uh, but when you're talking about investing in the brand and uh, Diageo as a great marketing organization has invested heavily in its brands and is reinvesting uh, at a notable rate, one of the 
things that obviously is a headwind at the moment is inflation, uh, cost of living in particular. How are you looking to mitigate that with Guinness? Because you obviously need to maintain a price uh, and uh, you are obviously afforded and have the luxury of a, a strong brand. I mean, what, what are you looking to do to mitigate that headwind of inflation at the moment? Neil, can I ask you that question? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's something that we are, you know, we're kind of living through now and, and responding to. I think the bigger piece is um, if we take a step back and really keep the consumer front of mind, understanding essentially with the cost of living crisis and rising inflation, what is that doing to the changing habits of our consumers and how they're socialising? And just making sure that we're coming up with the right solutions for them to still um, enjoy Guinness in a way that suits uh, their lifestyles, how they want to interact with the brand. So um, a lot of our innovation, for instance, has been focused on the at-home occasion. And um, because of that, um, it's not you know to cut our nose off to spite our face. It means that we're able to show Guinness drinkers who enjoy Guinness classically in Harbour Pint of Draft Guinness, they can also enjoy it at home, which might be more fitting for changing socialising habits. So really offering, using innovation to offer different category entry points to the brand. Mm. And Gronu, any headwinds that particularly concern you? And if so, what are you doing to mitigate? So look, you could pick any amount of headwinds, right? There's so much going on in the world right now. And it is a time of you know, deep volatility, a lot of uncertainty, we're coming out of COVID, you know, and, and that's been a, you know, I suppose, a really interesting dynamic. But at the same time, you look at sort of, as I said, the sort of a brand that has been around for hundreds of years, which has stood for values that have endured through, you know, wars and famine and lots of volatility. And those values that the brand stands for have never been more powerful and pertinent. And people are drawn to that. And uh, and I think, you know, us continuing to really, you know, hold true to um, our DNA, hold true to our positioning and understand the power that Guinness can have in times like this, I think is certainly one of the ways of mitigating it. The second thing, and Neil touching it, is like, even with this volatility, with inflation, everything else, premium brands are holding up strongly, right? And people are choosing wisely where they are placing their spend choices and brands that are distinctive that are quality that are iconic are performing better in that context so you know again holding steady on the course investing strongly staying close to the consumer of course and and, you know being agile and responsive and reactive and 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 doing that as well but it's that combination i think of consistency confidence in your positioning confidence in what you stand for as a brand building distinctivity and quality, you know, so as to uphold the value equation, investing strongly behind us, um, combined with agility. I, I mean, for me, that's how you mitigate any headwinds. Indeed. Uh, I, I mean, there is some strong evidence out there that uh, good brand equity uh, enables greater pricing power. But of course, you can't just achieve that overnight. It's built up over many, many, many decades. Uh, Neil, just calling back to something you just mentioned uh, just just now, and, and, and that's about category entry points. Um, part of your success, uh, the success of Guinness, is creating occasions and different entry points. How do you identify opportunities and where might you go next? Yeah, so I think um, in terms of identification, 
one of the things I love about working at Diageo is a real culture of learning and optimizing, um, really with the consumer and customer front of mind. So it's really around constantly keeping an eye and listening and seeing and hearing what our consumers and our customers are doing with consumer research, with some of our proprietary tools that we also have at Diageo. So we're really able to then articulate where the consumer is going next and how we can kind of best serve them. I touched on it earlier, but um, innovation has been a real key way in which we've been able to meet the consumer um, for where they're looking to go and how they're looking to interact with the brand. So again, I'll just kind of call out Guinness Zero. So that allows people who are looking to moderate but still want a great pint of Guinness to, to get just that. And then lots of um, innovation in our dispense technology as well, which um, is allowing people to get a beautiful pint of Guinness with all the theatre and, and the quality as that was sometimes only really restricted to draft Guinness, but able to get that at home or wherever they wherever they want it really. So that's kind of really critical. And then as as for where's next, I think um, we'll have to um, have that as a subject to a um, subsequent podcast. <laughs> There's me trying to uh, get the scoop on uh, future commercial plans for Guinness. Uh, but thank you for taking us as far as you could there, Neil. Not everything, I imagine, anyway, in your work for the brand has gone entirely to plan over the years. I know within Diageo, because I've spoken to some of your colleagues, there is a culture of learning from experience, learning from failure. Um, give me an example, uh, both of you, if I could ask both, of, uh, of an occasion where something hasn't quite gone to plan and what have you learned from that experience? Uh, let me continue with Neil. So um, probably far too many professionally and personally um from my perspective you know it's really about learning uh, adapting fast and um, moving forward it's a relatively recent example from from guinness in gb where um things hadn't almost gone to plan and then we learned adapted and um, moved into impact was pre-pandemic so if you look at um guinness and gb we were a lot more on trade focused so remember that's pubs bars and restaurants versus what we term as the off trade which is essentially grocery stores and convenience so at home consumption um, and when the pandemic hit and the pubs closed we had to adapt really quickly because the um the focus of our business had really been the on trade so um first of all we needed to quite quickly remind people that they could enjoy the same great guinness liquid um at home with guinness draft in a can um and that was with um, a new campaign that we developed um it was the first time we put guinness draft in a can on tv in over a decade and then we matched that with lots of um former innovation to ensure that when um, a drinker went into a grocery store or a convenience store, they were able to find the right um, format for them to enjoy Guinness um, for their for whatever occasion they wanted at home. And this was all the while whilst not wanting to take our eye off our on-trade customers. So whilst they were closed, wanting to really help them um, and support them to emerge stronger from the pandemic. And so this was um, through a £30 million donation we made via our Raising the Bar platform. We sent lots of our quality team into some of the closed on-trade pubs and, and bars and restaurants to ensure that the quality of Guinness when the pubs reopened was the best it could be and then also um, driving footfall back into their outlets with our welcome back campaign as well so now you know fast forward to where we are today I'm pleased to say we're focused both on the on trade and the off trade 
um, with the consumers and the customers we serve. And, and the bonus is that we're seeing a lot more drinkers who enjoy us both in pubs and at home, whereas pre-pandemic, there were drinkers who only really chose us in the pubs. Positive outcomes. Gronje? Oh, well, why don't I go to the other end of the spectrum then and give you um, one that maybe wasn't so positive in the end, um, but actually you take a lot from these things. And like that's the reality. There's a notion of what you call intelligent failure, which I kind of like. I'm not sure this was a very intelligent failure, but I'll share it nevertheless. And for me, it's when we become overly concerned with our own internal objectives or internal focus or start from a sort of a problem or a business issue we're facing versus a real kind of consumer opportunity challenge, etc. So way back in uh, about 2008, we launched an innovation called Guinness Black Lager, which on paper ticked all of the boxes. It was a refreshing premium lager. I don't know if you ever tried it, Russell. It was distinctive because it was black and it was going to take on all of the other premium lagers. And of course, like we didn't go into it without research. It researched incredibly well. Everybody told us they were going to drink it and loved it. And, and you know, again, in terms of that spirit of um you know, zigging when others zag. It was a really bold move. It broke all the category rules for lager. It broke all the category rules for stout. But um, I think I think you're getting to the place that we got to. It didn't work, right? It didn't work at all. And and why was that? Um, you're probably all listening to this, shaking your heads, going, "I could have told you it would never work." Um, but the reason is because it didn't really meet a non-met consumer need. It didn't have a clear enough occasion. What we call the consumer gift. Um, just wasn't strong enough and quite frankly it was way more about our desire to compete in you know what was the fast-growing lager segment at the time than it was about anything the consumer really needed so I just think there's such a huge lesson in that for us as marketeers you know to just remember you know to really interrogate um you know the consumer opportunity I mean at the same time I'm going I think it was brilliant very bold move from Guinness broke new ground we weren't afraid to call it um and um but I, but i think the big learning that i've taken from that and that i you know hold on innovation and everything else is just to really interrogate that consumer benefit and you know don't fool ourselves that just because we think we need it that it's really what the consumer is going to need yeah it's a it's a really good cautionary tale of i guess company orientation over customer orientation uh, thank you for sharing now we talked and alluded on many occasions in this conversation about guinness advertising campaigns of the past what's your favorite and uh why uh, neil i'll start with you Gronje mentioned um, earlier on that at Guinness, we have a bit of a rallying cry. That the quality of advertising has to be as good as the quality of the beer. And, and because of that, um, we have such an amazing creative legacy over the years we have been advertising. And, and the bar is really, really high. So for me, it's really hard to pick one. But Surfer will always have a very special place in my heart. Um, and for me, the reason being is highly creative dis- creatively distinctive it's engaging it's memorable and really no surprise that it's been crowned the greatest ad of all time by several different polls from a brand standpoint we talked a bit about the guinness values earlier um and i i really feel that the combination of the narrative of the ad the visuals and the music bring to life our brand values power goodness and communion in a really impactful way um and and still to this day when i when i watch it it makes my hairs stand on end um as, as a side note, um, our marketing director, Anita Robinson, um, of our GB business unit at Diageo, 
actually worked on the campaign. So it's been great to um, hear a lot about the learnings, um, in particular around being bold and brave, having a clear role for the brand and the liquid, um, and really um, keeping us in that emotionally engaging space to, to drive impact. Um, and that has really kind of helped us shape how we approach our marketing and our content and advertising today. Just a follow-up question to that. Do you think in the rather fragmented media world that we now in, that big advertising campaigns like Surfer that are remembered decades later are possible? Back in the days of Surfer, the, the media model used to amplify something that was very much focused on TV. I think now it's about, you know, TV is still a key part of the plans from a reach impact and um, frequency standpoint but it's a, it's a part of it so there are still other aspects so we're almost con- you know with constructing the the media models in, in different ways and, and on guinness in gb our media model is more digitally led so we can be always on uh, and more efficient and effective however we still produce tv so the welcome back campaign i mentioned earlier which has um, been one of the strongest from a creative impact standpoint and has a phenomenal roi included tv and that was the, the the key asset as part of that so i think in summary tv is still part of the mix but it's not all of the mix it's different i suppose and it brings more opportunities uh, but plenty of challenges uh, to cut through in different ways on different platforms and using those platforms to the best of their ability Gronje, your favorite in this campaign you can't have surfer i ban it i have two that i love uh one which is swim black which was um, I think the first ad that AMV made for us when they were appointed way back in, I think, around 98, uh, 97, around that time frame. And I just I think it's a super piece of copy, uh, product integrated, beautiful storytelling, incredible craft. But actually, the more recent one that I'm going to pick is, uh, again, an AMV spot called Guinness Sapers. Um which featured the Society of Elegant um, Dressers of the Congo, who basically through their own kind of creative self-expression brought joy to their community and kind of elevated um, them out of, you know, hardship and deprivation. And again, like, you know, whatever, 25 years on from Swim Black to Sapers, that same thread, Power, Goodness, Communion, that same... um, ambition for the creative and and i think it's interesting what you're saying like that ambition for creative isn't confined to dv like that ambition for our work touches everything so i think that's going to live on regardless how the media model evolves um, but anyway so that's mine suppose and i agree with you if i was forcing myself to choose just one campaign that i would call it would be that one one last question for both of you if i could the name of this podcast is this much i learned so let me ask you what you've learned from your time working on Guinness, if you could just identify one thing that you think others could learn from, what would that be? I'll continue with you, Gronje, if you could have a stab at that first. One thing, it's going to be a multi-layered one thing. That's all right. But I think that, and I mean, I hope you've heard this in the podcast, but like where you've come from as a brand, right? To really build, nourish that consistently, know your brand, know it inside out, know what makes it distinctive. Um, and, you know, stay humble, right? I think Neil touched on this earlier as well. Like ultimately remember, you know, building great brands is a collective effort that requires consistent effort over time. That could fit on a T-shirt, Ron. You're perfectly articulated. Neil, final word to you. It's one, um, as marketers, we all know, but sometimes forget. 
truly our work on Guinness is very consumer insight led. So for me, it's that the consumer is the judge, the jury and the executioner and therefore should be at the core of all the decisions we make. Again, succinct and cogent. Thank you very much, Neil. And thank you to you and Gronje for taking part and sharing and illustrating what is a great marketing story in Guinness. So thank you very much for your time today. And thank you to everybody for listening. Until next time on This Much I Learned, goodbye.